0: Invite you to just to keep your Bibles open there to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll spend our time there this morning. Um, We were gone last Sunday. We worshiped in uh, Searcy, Arkansas at uh, the West Pleasure Church of Christ, which is now known as simply uh, the Searcy Church of Christ with Haley. She's finished her first uh, week. She's had a great week, and thank you for those of you who have asked about that and have, have prayed for her and prayed for us Uh, we had a a good time with her last Sunday. I want to thank Landon for uh, stepping in and preaching. I came in early Monday morning and listened to his sermon. Wow, that was fantastic. Uh, We are so blessed. Landon, thank you for sharing your gift uh, of of preaching, that you have uh, able to communicate a message so eloquently, and I, I just was so blessed by that message, Do You Want to Get Well? Um, man, everything's been awesome this morning. I've, en- I've enjoyed everything. I've enjoyed all of our songs and our service. Uh, there's no God like Jehovah. Is that, is that true? Say that with me. There's no God like Jehovah. I know that my Redeemer lives. Say that with me. I know that my Redeemer... Man, we have sung some great songs, encouraged one another, that was my prayer this morning, and as I read to you from Psalm 34, let us exalt his name together. I feel like we've done that. And uh, the ancient prophet said that, that Jehovah, Yahweh, he inhabits the praises of Israel. He inhabited the praises of Israel. And I think that that is so true of us here this morning. And if that is true, and if we have literally sung praises to God, then that means that the presence of Yahweh, that the presence of the Lord is with us this morning. And if that is true, then we are standing on holy ground or sitting on holy ground this morning. Wow. Is that encouraging to you? Is that amazing? Is it almost a little bit fearful to be in the presence of Yahweh? Wow. Thank you. Thank you for being here. If you're visiting with us this morning, man, you are a special guest. Thank you for being here. We'd love for you to come back anytime that, that God brings you our way. We're studying through the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Appreciate Justin reading those first two verses. It's not enough... It's not enough for us just to hear the gospel. And it's really not even enough for us to identify with a community of believers. God's good news only benefits those who internalize it personally, believe it by faith, and then assimilate it, put it into practice in our daily lives. That's what the Hebrew author is is trying to get across to us, and I think especially in our reading this morning. Those who do that, those who come by faith, those who uh, put this stuff into practice will enjoy God's rest. And that rest comes to us in two different stages. We'll talk about that as we go along this morning. But let's just read our text this morning. And then we'll try to spend a few moments uh, unpacking some of this, making it more practical. Hebrews chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, When a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Throughout the book of Hebrews, our unknown author, he warns against unbelief. And unbelief always manifests itself in disobedience sooner sooner or later he warns against a hardened heart that causes someone to drift away as we saw a few weeks ago he he warns against this outright rejection of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made once for all time for all sin and so in in, in bringing about or issuing these warnings the writer remembers this this mixed multitude of these ancient Israelites that that Moses led out of Egyptian bondage. And surely in that mixed multitude, there there were those who believed, and yet there were some who did not believe. And that is true with any community, any community of faith. Undoubtedly, there will be those who truly believe, and yet there will be some who profess a faith, but aren't truly, truly believers. And with this in mind, I think the author urges the seriousness, the seriousness of godly fear. Notice what he says. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, the NIV says, let us be careful. Let us be careful. But the, the Greek word there that, that the NIV translates careful is the Greek word phobeo, where we get our word phobia. If you have a phobia of something, what does that mean? It means you're afraid of it, you're fearful of it. Uh, I, I, tend, I have a tendency to have a phobia of, of heights, uh, it's not so much the height, but it's that, it's that sudden stop at, when you hit the ground, you know, if you fall from it. Um, sometimes when we go over high bridges, uh, I'm driving and my hands will start to get a little sweaty. Does that happen to anybody else? Literally, I, I, my, hand, my hands are getting sweaty now, even as I say that. My wife fears that I'll fall from this high platform sometimes because I like to hang my toes over the edge. Um, no, I, I have a fear of heights. Uh, I have a phobia. If I get up too high, I just—I have this fear. That's what the Greek word is here. The NIV says, "Let us be careful," and and I kind of understand uh, maybe what that's trying to say. But but literally, he's saying, "Let us be fearful. Let us be afraid." that none of us fall short of what God is wanting for us. Because as we talked about this morning at the end of Exodus, God was so patient and kind and loving with with those people that came out of Egyptian bondage. They they turned away from him. They very quickly exchanged the truth of God for an idol. and, And he was ready to wipe them out. Moses pleaded, God, don't do this for your name's sake. And it says that God relented He didn't wipe them out. He changed his mind. He was so patient. And then he used those same people to build his tabernacle and to make all these garments. But guess what? Those people did not enter his rest. Those people never entered his rest because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience. So the warning now is to fear, to fear Lest anybody should come short of God's rest. I think our original, uh, the author's original readers were weighed down with discouragement. And we've talked about this for several weeks. Whatever that discouragement was, surely they have, they have left their original world, uh, worldview, uh, Judaism, they, they've left that to follow Jesus. Or maybe those Greeks, those uh, pagans that had, had worshipped maybe at, at pagan idols, pagan altars, had sacrificed to pagan gods, they've left that now to follow Jesus. But somewhere along the way, they've suffered, maybe for the cause of Christ, maybe because they've left their family, they've been ostracized, for whatever reason, They have endured some things for Jesus, but now maybe they feel like that this was in vain, that following Jesus was for naught. Not only have we not entered into his rest, but we've entered into distress. So they're in danger of falling short of what God has desired for them, falling short of entering his rest because uh, they're weighed down with discouragement, look at verse two. He says, "For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did." Now, when you hear the word gospel, what comes to your mind immediately? Hopefully, it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what that's what the apostle Paul talked about in First Corinthians fifteen. He says, "I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you," and then he goes on to explain to them that that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised according to the scriptures. That's, that's what I hope comes to your mind when you hear the word gospel. But he says they had the gospel preached to them. Those, those ancient Israelites out in the desert? Well, you understand that literally the word gospel just means good news, and that's really the way, it, maybe it should have been translated here. They had good news preached to them. What was the good news preached to them? Well, that God wants to be your God. He wants to dwell with you. And that if you will follow him, if you will obey his commandments, he will be your God, you will be his people. And there is coming a time when God is going to lead you into the land of promise. And in, <clears throat> in fact, he's going to... Dr- excuse me, he's going to drive out your enemies before you. He will do battle for you. He will fight your battles for you. Man, that's, that, that's good news, is it not? The battle belongs to the Lord, right? And God's going to do all that for you because he wants to be your God. He wants to dwell with his people. They fell short of that. They had that good news preached to them, but they fell short of it. It says that message was of no value to them because those who heard it didn't combine it with faith. Mm. It's sort of like like this. I I think most of us after church today are going to go and, and, and have something to eat. Am I right about it? That's kind of what we do, right? and you're like, Ronnie, hurry up and preach so that we can beat all the all the other groups to, to the restaurants. Now, I want you to think in your mind maybe you've got um, you've already got plans where you're going to go, maybe you've got something cooking at home, a pot roast, maybe the gospel bird, you got it in a crock pot, something like that that you've got waiting for you. but let's just stop and say, you can have any meal, you can have your favorite meal today, whatever that whatever that is for you, whatever that comfort food is for you, you could have that just waiting for you. And it's so delicious. It's so scrumptious. So after church, we love each other. We fellowship and now we go and we, and we sit down to this scrumptious buffet of a meal, the best that you could ever want. And say, you take a bite of that. Oh, it tastes so good. I mean, you just it just, you just love the way that it tastes, and you chew for a few chews, and then you turn, and there's a bucket on the floor, and you just spit that food out in a bucket. You say, Rodney, why are you, that's nasty. But then you take another bite, and you, you get a little flavor, you taste a little bit, and you chew it for a bit, and then you turn and you spit it out, and you never swallow it. That's what the Hebrew author is, is, is talking about. It's as if you have tasted but you've not internalized. You've never swallowed it. Those people, when you think about those ancient Israelites that were led out of Egyptian bondage, did they see anything of the power of the Lord? Did they witness any miracles? Did they see anything miraculous happen? Do your heads like this. Yes. Oh yes they did. And yet they so quickly turn from God to idols. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. How is that possible? After seeing all that they saw, after walking through on dry ground with their enemies chasing them in hot pursuit, they walk across on that dry ground, they turn and look, and all their enemies are taken care of. Bam, just like that. How could you turn from God. And yet, how can I turn from him? Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ dwelling in me, promised to me, making his abode in me. And yet, I can turn from him. Oh, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, brothers and sisters, but it is. We've got to combine it with faith. It's not just a matter of hearing the good news It's not just a matter of of being with a, a group of people that profess belief in this good news, but it's about swallowing that and internalizing it, making it a part of us. Merely hearing the good news doesn't guarantee that we will experience the blessing that that news announces. Believers in Jesus... We enter one aspect of God's rest right now, and then we'll enter another aspect of it in the future. Look with me in verse 3 here. <clears throat> now, we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Those, those people that disobeyed, they, they didn't enter that rest. And look at this. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the above passage, he says, they shall never enter my rest. How do we enter into that rest that he's talking about that was promised to those people? It was promised several hundred years later again to David And now it comes to us. Obviously, if Joshua, when he led them into the promised land, if that was the rest that they were talking about, they wouldn't be talking about another rest, right? So how do we enter that rest? I think it's very interesting when you go back to Genesis. I was looking back uh, there at the creation story this week as I was reading through this text. After every day of creation... When God created on the first day, it says there was there was uh, evening and there was morning the first day. And then his works of creation continue the next day, and it says, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then it says about the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. But on day seven, it says God rested from all of his works because he was done creating. And it does not. It does not include that phrase, "evening and morning," the seventh day. So you know what that implies. You know what I. You know what I get from that. That that seventh day has never ceased for God. God has has entered into His rest. He's no longer creating, right? I mean, don't, let's don't overcomplicate it. He created the earth in six days, and then He's rested from that. He's no. He's no more creating. So he rests from that work in the sense that creation, the works that I'm doing in creating this world are finished. They're done, right? So when we enter into that rest, it's not like the Sabbath rest that God graciously gave to Israel so that they would would work hard for six days and then they would have a day of rest, a Sabbath rest, so that they could rest from their labors. That's not what he's talking about here. Because after that Sabbath rest, guess what? Six more days of, of labor, right? Six more days of work. So God gave them uh, that, that Sabbath rest as a, as a blessing for a man to, to rest from his labors, from all that hard work that he could rest so that he could use that day to recreate his mind, to draw closer to God, to, to Yahweh. What, what he's talking about here? that we, when we enter that rest, when you come to Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Him, when you obey His gospel, when you're buried with Him in baptism, when you're raised to walk in newness of life, you enter into that rest. What does that mean? It means that we rest fully in the knowledge that there is nothing that we can do. Nothing that we can say, no arena in which we can serve that would make us merit the salvation that God is offering us. We rest fully in the knowledge that Jesus Christ has done everything, that it was paid for, that there's nothing else that needs to be done. You say, Rodney, I thought the Apostle Paul said that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And yes, we were, and yes, we are, but we 're not working in that sense in order to be saved we 're working because we are saved. We came yesterday, there were a handful of us that came and 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 uh, joyfully were able to serve people in this community who who needed a meal, and some of them literally needed that meal yesterday, and they needed. The, the work that, that Rob and his crew and Bill and, and those that were serving and, and handing out food, just trying, to, just trying to make ends meet. What a blessing that was. But I don't think anybody got up yesterday morning and said, I got to get to the church tomorrow so I can work. I can get up and, and, and go to work so I can earn my salvation. No, no. We rest in the knowledge that Jesus has done everything that there's nothing we could do to be right with God except put our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. And so we enter into his rest. Just like God is no longer working in creation, we don't have to do any work in order to be right with God. Amen? We don't have to do any work in order to be right with God. But we must come to him in faith. We must combine the words that we've heard with faith so that we don't fall short of that rest. But we put it, we're putting our faith in the man, Jesus Christ, who's done everything. It's finished. Isn't that what he said on the cross? It is finished. And so we put our faith in that and our hope and our trust, and then we enter into God's rest. And, oh, there's coming another day. Listen to me. There's coming another day when Jesus returns, when we will enter into that eternal rest. Okay? That's what, that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what, that's what the, the Hebrew author was, was encouraging. Some of you have started this journey, but I'm afraid you're going to fall short of it. You're, you're so weighed down that you're wanting you to turn away and you're wanting to turn back. Maybe some of you have started this journey, but you've never really internalized this. You've never really been in a right relationship with Jesus, and now you're, you're wanting to turn, turn back to what it was that you came from. Don't do it. Don't do it. Any person who professes to trust in Jesus but who lives in anxiety and uncertainty regarding God's acceptance has not yet fully grasped the reality and the truth of the gospel. I I, I shared with you before, I I almost know I did. Maybe I didn't. I forget things these days. But when I was living in Nashville, attending the Madison Church of Christ, I witnessed the girl be baptized a second and a third time, and that is not uncommon for uh, for those of us who who have grown up in the church as a as a small child, always hearing about Jesus. Um, we we. We know that if we want to go to heaven, we need to, to be baptized into Christ. And so we, we, we do that at an early age. We want to. And as parents, we, we love for our children to know and, and to hear about Christ from an early age. That's why we bring them to church and to Sunday school and teach them at home. But this girl had been baptized when she was young. She wanted to be baptized uh, again in her early mid-20s. I think she was. Not uncommon. But yet I watched that baptism, and then I watched the third baptism a year or two later. She did not fully grasp how wide and how deep is the love of the Father, that what Jesus did satisfied everything, in every way, and that all she had to do was to just say to God, "I'm sorry." that if she was faithful to confess her sins, that God would be faithful and just to forgive her. She hadn't grasped that. Oh, I pray that she has now. That was many, many years ago. But when we live in anxiety and we're uncertain about our salvation, no, 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 no. Listen, that's what... (laughs) We, we sang this morning, and you said with me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that's what the, the Apostle John said when he wrote in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may wonder, so that you may be confused, so that you may know, so that you may know, know, know that you have eternal life. There's no wondering. Am I say? Am I good enough? I had a lady respond years ago to one of my sermons. It doesn't happen often. But a lady responded. She was fixing to have surgery. She was, she was frightened about the surgery. And she said to me, I just want God to forgive me because I just don't, I just don't know that I've been good enough. And I said, sister, let me, let me just share this with you. You have not been good enough. You have not. Nor will you ever be. That has never been what's made us right with God. Being good enough. Being worthy enough. Because that's none of us. But there was one who was worthy. Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't think we're going to beat anybody today. My goodness. Mm. This is good stuff. Um, God has always intended for there to be some people who enjoy this rest with him. God has entered into his rest and through all eternity... He's he's just looking for people to enjoy that rest with him. God has always desired a people of his own. Not a people... God didn't create us because he needed us to worship him, as if in some way he, he was lacking anything. God creates us created human beings because it's as if he had so much love. God is love. And he created us because he wanted to invite us, those of us who would believe, those of us who would trust, those of us who would give him our hearts and our lives. He's he's invited us into his rest because he wants a people to be his own. There were those who fell short of that because of their disobedience. Notice what he says in verse 6. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If God had a, a salvation calendar, you know, we, we have January through December 12 months, and each month has, you know, has certain weeks. If God had a salvation calendar, it would just have one page today. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Any day that somebody puts their faith in Jesus, that's the day of salvation any day that somebody would hear the good news and respond, that's the day of salvation. Just one day on God's salvation calendar, today. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like they did long ago. Don't do that. But obey. Listen. Oh, we've got to go. Time is ebbing away. We've already talked about Joshua. Joshua. Verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Obviously, he's talking metaphorically here. I don't know if there's anything that could you know, distinguish between a person's soul and a spirit. There aren't aren't any words on a page that are going to divide joints and marrow. But what he's saying is God's word is so alive and it's so active. If that were possible, that's what the word of God can do. I mean, it can separate even the smallest minute thing because the word of God is living. The Bible is the only book that is alive. Do you know that? It's living, it's active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And look at what he says here. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every belief that you have in your mind about God, God knows that. Every unbelief that a person has, God knows that as well. There is nothing that is hidden. There's about three things here that Edward Fudge talks about in his commentary on the book of Hebrews that has to do with this idea of God knowing and seeing everything. The first is uh, is the the priest. When when the law of Moses was given, they had to have offer sacrifices for for certain things. When they when they fell short, um, a lot of things were not moral sins that they gave sacrifices for. But but if you touched a dead body or um, came in contact with blood, it, it made you unholy that you couldn't approach God in the temple. So they had to bring sacrifices, and the priest had to. To look at those sacrifices and inspect them, so that none were, were found to have blemish or a spot or a blind eye or a broken leg or something like that, you could not offer that to God. And so that was that was the priest's duty to make sure that this to, that he would inspect this sacrifice. So that's one thought. Another was in. The Roman criminal system. Oftentimes, a criminal uh, would would they would do things like public shaming. Well, we don't we don't do that anymore. But back in the day, um, if if somebody was caught stealing, uh, they would they would shame them publicly, and they would walk out and you know they would be hanging their head, and they would pull that face back so that everyone could gaze upon the face of the criminal, so that nothing was hid. And the third thing I think Fudge said was, had to do with uh, the idea of a doctor or a surgeon, that the body had to be stripped bare so that nothing was hidden, so that he could readily see the problem, and then he could take the scalpel and use that scalpel to cut away whatever was, was, was troubling the patient. That's why even today when you go to the hospital, you have to wear those gowns that show everything, you know. You know, you're, you're just walking down the hall like this because everything's got to be laid bare so the surgeon can see what he's doing. That's the way our lives are with God. Nothing is hidden. And so on one hand, that brings so much comfort to me that God knows me. He really knows me. We're going to talk about that more next Sunday when we talk about Jesus as our high priest. He became one of us. He became like us so that he, he could know us. But you remember how the, the chapter began? Let us fear. Let us be fearful. It's, it's comforting to know God knows us, but it's a fearful thing to handle the word of God. Am I right? It's a fearful thing to handle the word of God, knowing that he knows us so intimately. And one day we're going to have to stand before him and give an account for everything we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's a scary thing. But there was one. His name is Jesus. He did become like us so that he could know us and so that he himself could bear our sins in his body on the tree so that you and I might die to sins and live for righteousness. We have been healed by his wounds. You know, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. If you need that rest this morning, do you remember what Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That still remains for anyone who would put their faith in him.